Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellished Podcast. An opportunity for me to ramble about whiskey or something for a few minutes. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on any pad podcasting platform that exists if you can't find me on a platform send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and i'll get that taken care of you can also find video versions of this podcast on youtube you can find all of my links on instagram at embellishpod um, i have a website it is www.embellishpod.com that is a place to pick up these links episode details and more today we're going to have a guest joining us and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things from ready to drink cocktails to wild capture of yeast to uh uh, coffee, whiskey, crossovers, uh, and so, so much more. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy today's episode. Okay, so um, this afternoon I've got uh, Michael Woody uh, Dombrowski, and I think that's probably right, but I probably got it wrong. Um, no, you're perfect, man. That's it. Man. Perfect. That's, yeah. um, joining me, he's going to talk a little bit about himself. So, Michael, um, you reached out to me and said, hey, I want to have some conversations about a number of different things, and I'm absolutely on board with some of the geeky stuff that um, you, you want to talk about. But give me you know, just a little introduction of who you are and, and what it is that you do. Okay, I actually did the sales pitch last night to, to a local winery. But um, my name is Michael Nebrowski. I am a, a local distiller here in eastern part of Pennsylvania. Uh, I have been distilling, brewing, uh, making wheat, mead. Uh, whiskey, wines um, for the last 30 years. Um, I create my own recipes using my own uh, hyper-localized yeast strains to create a distinct flavor um, that's specific to our region. Um, I do have other yeast strains. Actually, I have uh, over 2,000 yeast strains from all over the, the globe um, that I collect and propagate and use and test, and I also use them to blend other hybrid uh, strains so you get different flavors and flavor profiles for either beers, uh, wines, or meads, or whiskeys. So you, 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 you kind of touched on a thing that I'm always, always interested in hearing um, is that you use hyper-localized yeast strains. How do you go about capturing your yeast? I've heard some different versions of how people might capture yeast, um, and I assume that's what you're doing is you are capturing yeast. Uh, so what's, what's sort of your pro without getting too, I guess maybe too proprietary, maybe I shouldn't say that, but, um, there's, there's, there's several ways you can do it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's one way where you can actually, uh, if you have permission from the local brewery, if like, if I'm working where the local brewery or, or distillery, I can go in there and I can actually capture the yeast using a, a sterilized swab, capture that yeast from one of their pieces of equipment and take that swab, dip it in, uh, a, a, a a beer, a non-fermented beer with the sugars in it, and then let it sit and then promote it and then use Petri dishes to let it grow and, and propagate that way. That is one way. Another way is to collect wild flowers, wild insects, mostly bees, wasps, flies, um, have them sit in a non-fermented beer, um, actually without hops because you, you don't want any of, any of that off flavor. And you then use whatever you capture or grow in that test vial onto a petri dish uh, and propagate it that way on uh, another factor that i use at, with local wineries cideries and farms is i take uh it's a, a non-fermented beer again no hops and i have it in a mason jar all everything's all sterile and i take that out um, at dusk let it sit underneath a tree near a grapevine near a you know a, a, an orchard and allow it to collect the wild yeasts 
during the evening. Um, there's different seasons you do this. You can do that in the spring, summer, and fall sometimes, depending on what you want to catch and what type of reaction you want with the yeast, because a yeast is a living organism that actually will evolve through the season. So the same yeast, I mean, you can collect the yeast in, uh, let's just say, Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, in the spring, and that same yeast strain will be evolved come the fall where it will be more pro appropriate to withstand the colder temperatures and it will actually give a cleaner ferment in the colder temperatures. So how do you pick a location? Like if you're getting, you know, like, and I know that may be way generic of a question, but you, you were talking about you might pick, you know, under some grapevines or under a tree or whatever. Like, is there, is there a location that like, this is like, just from experience, you know, like this is where I should sit it or um, are you guessing? Like, I, I know there's like sort of yeast everywhere, but not all yeast is good yeast for what you're trying to do. That's correct. Yeah. You can end up with some real terrible things. So um, like what is it? Is it a sense or, or what is it? Like how, how, do, um, how do you get there? I, I used to read a lot of the well, growing up on a farm up in Schuylkill County. I, I used to read a lot of my grandmother's old um, reader die readers digest, or like she had old uh, farmer's almanacs and they back then they didn't have the, the, I guess, the enzymes are not the enzymes. I'm sorry. The fertilizers that we do today. I mean, back then they had to rely on what they had at the farm. So you'd have to use the cow, but also in those articles, they always express that the best place to grow a certain grain, the mm -hmm. best, best place to grow a wheat, a, a rye, a, a, a corn uh, and, and so forth. Barley. I mean, it was always, you know, a certain, field facing it's got to be north south facing it's got to be east west facing um it's got to be in closer in proximity to a water source so it would catch the moisture coming off you know of a, of a morning thing so i'm reading these articles so you you use that and you kind of well i've been using those and i've kind of based everything off of that so if i'm doing a rye whiskey and based on the articles i've read on how best to grow rye without fertilizers in modern technology, um, I'd use those exact areas to actually place those traps. And they, I so, call them, they're yeast traps. Right. Yeah. And, and so I, th I think maybe I'm maybe oversimplifying it is that you're generically looking in places where you're going to be growing the crop that you're going to eventually want to ferment. Right. So if it's, if you're wanting to do rye, you want to be near the rye you're growing or a rye type like it. Same thing with the wine, um, same thing, I guess, with, with corn or wheat or whatever that you happen to be fermenting. You're trying to stay as close as you can to where that particular crop is grown. Is that, is, that, is that, that accurate? That's accurate. Yes, yes. Okay. And, and, and so and go ahead. I was going to say, and, and we work with a local farmer, too. I'm working with a local farmer. We actually are doing a hybrid corn. Mm -hmm. um, we are we have several different varieties. We have uh, the, the uh, was it the red corn, the Jimmy John, the Bloody Butcher, the Oaxacan, uh, I did get a Lenny Lenape, which is our local Indian tribe here in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Um, I do have that, and I actually have it growing out back. It's my my little field out back that I do my specialty crops in, where we'll actually grow it. And once we, we figure out what flavor we get from it, um, we'll then try and crossbreed it with other strains of grain and see if we can get those flavors going. And once we get those strains you know, crossbred and we get a, a, a viable uh population then we'll start mass producing it in our in our fields 
Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I you know I've, I've had a conversation with with Alan Bishop before about this, and I've listened to him talk about it with the Steelers talk um, about you know there, there's no reason that at least for every um, micro distillery that exists or craft distillery that exists that you shouldn't have your own corn variety that you're growing because it's not that hard to you know to crossbreed corn to kind of get to a flavor that's going to be you know really unique to your area especially if you're looking at you know some native corns that have been in your area but you know you want to add a flavor by bringing in something else i mean it's all like really 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 interesting and nerdy things that um i don't i don't know if we spend enough time sort of talking about uh, how those types of decisions could could impact um, flavor. So you've, you've captured, let's just say, you know, you've, you've gone out, you've captured your yeast, um, you have the crop that you're growing. Um, do you do, do you do any like, uh, uh, like actual analysis, like scientific analysis of the yeast or you just say, all right, now let's, let's pitch it in and see what flavor comes out the other side in a new make. I, I've been looking for a gas chromatograph so I can actually do a, you know, a, a DNA analysis. Um, Right now, the, the expense is so, so overwhelming, right. and so I'm not I'm not going to get to that level. But um, so what I'm doing now is I'll do small test batches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll do real small test batches um, uh, in a controlled temperature environment um, with with a yeast strain, and I might have up to oh god, I mean, I, I had like maybe forty or fifty five gallon drums go into one day um, that I actually ferment and I actually test them. Um, see what see what they they come out like, and then I'll run them through a still, and see the flavor profiles they give me in the stripping run, and what they give me on a spirit run, and then you know I'll, I'll narrow it down to the select five, and after I get my select five, I'll then try and you know really tweak it. You know, if I, in the first couple ones will be fermented at you know forty degrees or forty three. I mean, I mean there there's slight variations you do to each one. And then once you test them and taste them, you'll, you can taste the difference, and then you can actually start fluctuating with them as you proceed. So you mentioned a minute ago that you know, depending upon the the time of the year that you're trying to propagate the yeast, can impact how it behaves. Is it is it an is it a nightmare to try to keep it you know neutral enough or maybe like the same enough when you're going through this process because. You know, if you, you know, you for a minute, you let it run for a few days, you could be transitioning into a different weather pattern. Now that yeast is shifting. Like, how, how do you maintain some sort of a standard or, or does it say standard enough in its own flavor profile? Just, you know, slightly tweaks. Just, it's just, it's, it's standard. I mean, if you have uh, one, I mean, there are some yeast strains that you actually use then and they're are so significant a difference if you ferment at 70 degrees versus 72 degrees you might get mm-hmm. you know fruity esters and you know as you get a little bit higher you might get a little bit hotter and you might get a little clove you might get a little bit of um, more spice um, and, and all it all depends on your, your your base grain too but I mean there is a controlling mechanism that I, I mean I have I'd have to say 12 or 13 refrigerators um each one i mean it drives my wife nuts i mean i mean, I mean right. every once in a while she'll go into her fridge going what's this and yeast <laughs> <laughs> so it may it, and maybe that's a, it's a good place to sort of transition like you're, you're doing all these tests with some commercialization in mind so um you've got some projects that you can talk about you know who you're operating with and you've got some things that you're doing for yourself so let's start with you know you, you you're capturing yeast or you're doing distillation you're doing a number of different things with different people so like wh- where are you working now that's not your normal day job this this all-consuming side hobby that you have that is also like probably a full-time job uh, as well 
All right. Uh, I currently I am master distiller for Yardley Distillery in Yardley, Pennsylvania, which is um, we're a suburb of Philadelphia. Um, very big Philadelphia Eagles, Phillies, Flyers fans down there. I'm also doing consultant work for a number of other distilleries within Pennsylvania and a couple in South Carolina, North Carolina. I'm doing some breweries, I'm growing some yeast strains for them. And I just met with several wineries, uh, one in particular yesterday, to do some yeast strains for them specific to their locale. Um, I'm also working with a local farmer here who actually, uh, in a previous job, um, he grew our grain specifically for us. And that farmer, uh, he has uh, Sayundala Farms up in Copley, Pennsylvania. And we are actually looking at creating our own rustic barn distillery, a hyper localized, um, you know, dealing with the yeast, the, the grains themselves, growing them there, feeding them to his sheep when they're spent and using the sheep fertilizer, using the cow fertilizer, chicken fertilizer to fertilize. It's just a, a, a mm -hmm. continuous life cycle um, to do that. And we're also doing our own malting there. So that you, you said a whole lot there. And I, I want to touch back on this rustic barn distillery thing that you're looking at. Is it is it feels like you're taking distilling back to what it was when distilling sort of first hit the United States specifically, because it was very agriculturally based. Um, and, and it kind of blossomed into an industrial effort at the same time that, you know, the nation largely became an industrial effort as well. Um, and so we missed this time that existed where you had, you know, maybe somebody that went from small town to small town with a still um, and local farmers could bring it in as an opportunity to still off. Um, any of their grain that they weren't going to be able to store, you know, because we didn't have, you know, grainers, we didn't have good ways of storing grain at that point in time. But if you got into a distilled product, it was shelf stable forever. Um, right. It, was that, is that the goal behind this or is this just a happy byproduct of what you're doing? It, it is a goal. We want to be 100 percent, you know, back to our roots. Uh, mm -hmm. The way we were doing everything, uh, pot still, obviously, I, I still have my my great grandmother still. Um, and, and the warm, um, that she did back in the 1800s. And, uh, that's, there was people, I mean, it was a small little coal community that she was brought up in and she would, I mean, give, I wouldn't say give, but she would sell to the local community. And it was actually very popular that even the outskirt towns knew of her and her rye whiskey, especially her rock and walk, rock and rye. That was my, one of my grandmother's thing. And even my uncle, um, and my aunt, who was the only one that left that would drink it. She continues to this day saying how awesome the, the rock and rye was. Uh -huh. um, so you've got this, you've got this, this long term history of of doing this, and I know a lot of like you know pre pre prohibition or pre industrialized whiskeys weren't necessarily aged in the same way that we sort of understand it. And this has always been the big question that I've had, you know, because we can recreate. Um, distilling practices from you know whenever they were you know more on farm based, but what we're going to effectively be missing is the old growth wood that was used to make barrels, right? Because wild grown old growth wood has distinctly different graining patterns, um, how it allows the the liquid to interact with the wood in and out of it is going to be distinctly different because it's generically going to be denser you know it's had to stand up to wind and rain and you know farm trees are very very different they grow much much faster um have you thought kind of that far down the road or you just you know the cooperage is going to be somebody else's problem we're worried about distillate no 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 the, the cooperage is is actually something that we're looking at right now um in fact that we are actually doing local batches of corn and working uh getting stuff into barrels now so that when we do open 
it's mm. out there. Um, as far as I, I do believe the cell structure of the the fibers, like you you indicated, have a different pattern, a different uh, alignment, so to speak, from back then to now. I do have several barrels that um, I'm actually uh, one of the professors of the University of Alabama. I'm going over to his house tonight, and uh, he's got several barrels um, from the 1800s that he wants to give me. So, I mean, he's like, you got to try these, you got to look at these and just, so I, I, I can't wait to get to him. He said he's right. got some old rum barrels too, um, that he's, he's just got, he's got a lot of antiques. Yeah. It. And I've heard of some folks that are like trying to find like old oak log cabins and harvest wood out of that to make barrels out of, right? Because that's the closest you're going to be able to get to that old growth is finding something like that. But he actually has barrels from that era that, you know, that's that's probably the way that we can get close. And, and I think this is the thing that gets probably scary as a whiskey nerd is that just because we recreate it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to fit the flavor profile of a modern whiskey drinker. And I think about um, what the Leopold brothers did out in Colorado where they made the three chamber rye and a whole lot of people immediately were like, eh, I don't know that I necessarily like it. Well, things were distinctly different. You know, palettes were different. How whiskey was made was different. Um, but those are the things that I find interesting, right? Maybe the average consumer is not after it, but this this, this seems super interesting. It, it's funny that you say that because the rye my grandmother did back in the, the 20s and the 30s, I mean, I remember tasting it years ago. And, I mean, she just did the, you know, she did the strip and run and she did the spear run. She did a double run on her little, little pot still. It was a 10-gallon uh, pot still that she used to run on the coal stove. And the flavor profile is a little, it's, it's more astringent than it is in today's rye. And, and I could be using the same rye, the exact same recipe. It's just different. I could even use the exact same still. It's still mm -hmm. something different. I mean, it could could it be the temperature of the the condenser that I'm running different that's causing that? Um, I mean, it's the same. the The ingredients, the way I'm running it, is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. it, you run the risk of, you know, especially. And I don't I don't know anything about your grandmother, but I know that if I got a recipe from my grandmother um, for anything, I can follow it to a T. But it's never going to recreate because there's like one thing that she did that she never wrote down. It was just a part of how she made things. Right? It was something that was sort of tossed in there at the last second that dramatically impacts it. And so it could be something like that. It could be water quality. It could be, you know, any number of things that make it different. But I'm I'm interested. And I think there's a, a good group of people that are interested in trying to chase down what it was. I mean, that's what whiskey is a nostalgic beverage, right? It's a nostalgia. Nostalgia is like probably the best drug that exists in the world. We're all trying to chase memories. Um, and so I, I think that's interesting, but you've mentioned your grandmother a couple of times. So let's, let's get a little background on the distilling from a familial background here. Okay. Uh, well, actually my great grandmother in Pennsylvania, she was a midwife. And as a midwife, she, you know, everybody had the stills back then in the 1800s that, you know, they were, they were the apothecary. Of, of the of the town and my great grandmother would make laudanum and all of you know what laudanum is it is an opium based liquor um as far as flavor profile it would take like it tastes like um ouzo or um the anise um but it has a lot more sugar in it because i i mean i can i can make it and i i have made it um it, it does mess you up uh, mentally. Um, it, it kind of like one shot. You're like, holy cow. Um, so she started doing a laudanum. She 
educated my grandmother. This is all on my mother's side of the family. My my grandmother on my mother's side of the family would do it. And she worked. She lived in a small, what they call the patch. It was a coal mining town where you sold your soul to the company. And you got paid in company chits. That's C-H-I-T-S, mm -hmm. um, which is the company money. And you can always spend that at the company store. In order for her to go to nursing school in Allentown, she had to make money outside of that. So she started doing the rye whiskey. And this is, I think she started making it around 1910, 1911 to make enough money that she graduated from Allentown nursing school right around 1917, right before the pandemic, the first one. And during the pandemic, she would actually treat patients. She was a nurse. She would soak her gauze mask in the rye whiskey, put the rye whiskey on or the rye whiskey mask on her mouth and and she would go in and treat patients she never got the the pandemic back then which was the uh, spanish influenza fast forward a number of years you know they went through prohibition um they went through you know the, uh, world war one world war two um, my uncle on my dad's side um when my parents got married in the late i'm sorry early 50s they kind of my uncle on my dad's side kind of hooked up with my grandma. I don't mean hooked up, but got together with my grandmother. <laughs> That's kind of weird. Connected. Um, connected, yeah, exactly. connected. I'm from Kentucky, man. We've heard it all. So don't worry about it. <laughs> That's right. But it's a small coal town. So you never know. Um, so my grandmother and my uncle got connected and uh, my uncle, uh, we call his, his name was Stashu or, or Stanley Dombrowski and uh, typical Polish name. But we called him uncle Argyle. Cause every time he drank, he sounded like he was Scottish. He didn't understand the English coming out of his mouth. So Uncle Argyle started learning how to do that. And he actually blew up my grandmother's kitchen on my father's side. But bonus, since he blew up the kitchen, that is when they started getting indoor plumbing. So they no longer had the outhouse. So he blew up the one side of the kitchen. So they put a bathroom on the other side of the wall. So they finally got indoor plumbing in the farmhouse. Um, Uncle Argyle, um, we've always you know, talked uh, for years. And the one day he came out and he started talking about Boilo. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, we love the boy. Boilo is a very popular drink here in Pennsylvania, especially in the coal region. I mean, there's contests, there's there's celebrations, there's festivals for it. Um, so we started talking about the Boilo years ago. And he's like, yeah, I'll teach you how to make it. And he taught me. And then we started talking about the whiskey and stuff. He's like, yeah, I got your grandmother's, you know, still and, you know, condenser. You want it? And I'm like, sure. And he's like, I also got a BMW motorcycle. You want that too? I'm like, mm, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> So I ended up getting a still and for the next, I would say, 15 years, he, we were working together. I I would do stuff. Uh, I would make a batch, um, send him a case of Yingling from Pennsylvania out to Ohio, along with a batch of my uh, hooch that I made. And he'd you know, tell me what I did wrong or tell me what was going on with the, with the batch. So I learned uh, via distance with him and... Then since then, I just started getting into the whole background, the Scientology, so to speak, of the yeast fermentation, the actual uh, grains, the, the the growing of the grains, the firm, the fertilization of the grains. Um, you know, from my standpoint, uh, tasting oat, oats from pig fertilizer versus cow fertilizer, I'd prefer the pig fertilizer. Um, it's just how trial and error. And that's what we yep. did. And I've been doing it for, like I said, for 30 years, um, worked for one distillery, got them a number of awards, 
um, moved on um, at Yardley and then started getting ready to start her own. So, yeah. So, and, and I've, 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 you know, I read a little bit about Boilo and I knew that it was um, related to cold cu- culture and, um, I was sort of surprised that it's not a thing that, that exists, at least around me. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with John Prime, but he wrote a song called Paradise, um, and it mentions a coal town in western Kentucky that's like an hour from where I sit right now. So we're moderately familiar with, with coal, uh, coal culture a little bit. Um, but it's just it's not something that's here, and I assume it has uh, more to do with that's you know a very Pennsylvania-specific uh, thing. But um, I know laudanum was really, really popular um, – out west, you know, I you know, grew up watching western movies with my grandfather, and you know, anything tombstone related always refers to laudanum specifically around. Uh, I think was it Wyatt Earp's wife. Um, so, laudanum is what whiskey and opium together. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes, and it's uh, it's very potent. It, let's just say uh, mostly. Laudanum back in the 1800s, as far as I understand, my, my grandmother would have it at a my great grandmother would have it about 120 proof. Mm-hmm. Um, and the opium itself kind of took the burn away. Right. Um, and would give it a distinct flavor. But they'd also use star, like a, like a fennel seeds is, is a lot what they used, as well as uh, star anise to take the flavor down um, and actually take out the bitterness of the, the poppy. And Getting poppy into this country is not easy. <laughs> no, I, I can imagine. And um, my 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 entire childhood, my mom was a pharmacist growing up. And um, as a part of her doctoral work, she spent a lot of time like researching homeopathy, alternative medicines, and so anything that comes from an herbal background, which you know opium does, um, has always sort of intrigued her. Uh, so I, you know, she'll absolutely be interested in kind of understanding this process. But. Um, you, you mentioned Yardley in there, and, and so you're working for – you're consulting and master distiller for Yardley right now, and Yardley is uh, – what is Yardley? How about that? Yardley's a – I would say it's a small, really small craft distillery. We have a, a bourbon. We have a vodka, and I, I, I'll get into the chain of vodkas, but we have a, a bourbon, a vodka, and, a, and a, a rum. Our vodka has three different varieties. We have the regular straight vodka, which is kind of a Tito style. Then we also have a gold vodka. Gold vodka is an aged vodka. Um, and because it is a vodka and not a bourbon, it doesn't have to conform to the bourbon rules and our regulations. So it doesn't, it can go in at above 120 proof. Um, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a brand new barrel. So, I mean, we don't have to follow the strict rules as a bourbon. So we create it. It's like a bourbon esque type of vodka that instead of using your, your, your high end, um, you know, whiskeys to make a, a old fashioned or a Manhattan, Hey, you know what? $20 bottle of gold vodka. It's got the same oakiness, the flavor. Um, it doesn't have the, the sweetness of that you would get from the corn, but it does enhance and gives you that flavor that you're looking for when you do the old fashions or the Manhattans or whatever whiskey cocktail you're drinking. Another drink that, um, or vodka that we have is a green vodka. As I stated, Yardley Distillery is located just in the suburbs of Philadelphia, which we are big Eagles, uh, Flyers, and Phillies fans. And uh, when the Phillies were in the World Series last year, I was like, hey, you know, why don't we make a red vodka? For the Phillies, and we could sell that. And uh, they're like, ah, well, man. Then the Eagles made the Super Bowl, and it was like, oh, we can make a green vodka. I'm like, yeah, I can make a green vodka. Just, you know, give me the color green so I can calculate, 
you know, the, the density of the green versus the vodka to make sure it comes out at 80 proof. So we got the vodka as well. We also have uh, canned cocktails. These are specifically made with our products, our bourbon, our, our, our uh, vodka, uh, lemoncello. Um, I forgot. I have, we have lemoncello. We also have an orange cello um, product. Uh, we use the lemoncello to make our lemonade cocktail, uh, canned cocktail. We have a 50-50, which is the Arnold Palmer. Uh, and then we have a bourbon iced tea, a Cape Cod, which is a vodka and cranberry and lime juice. And then we also just released margarita, which we'll be doing a tequila shortly in the next couple of weeks, too. So I think as I was poking around, I found that um, the the folks who own Yardley also own a, have a, a coffee roasting business. They do. They do. So so are we going to see any cup of a coffee liqueur or a coffee crossover with whiskey? I've been pushing for that. I, I like that. I mean, it's not a major. I mean, he's got uh, I went to high school at Fred. Fred's got uh, five restaurants in like La La Lobster. Um, he's got a, a pizza shop, another diner. And then we're open at Tex-Mex in uh, Morrisville. And then we're in, in the process of opening another bigger facility. Uh, mm -hmm. down the road in Morrisville for to actually do the distillery in. Um, right now we're operating at a location that's maybe like a thousand square feet. Yeah. And my wife's doing all the production from there. I mean, it's like, you know, you're sitting there you're walking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trust me. You're, you're very uh, tied in there. You don't have much room to, to do anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think they also have an apiary. Is this right? Um, they do. It's very minor, very small. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, as far as an apiary, I have one uh, closer to me in Easton. He is one of the major suppliers. Mm -hmm. He actually imports a lot of uh, his honey because I, I deal with him because when I was doing the Boilo, um, he was my prime source. And he's one of the, anytime you are at a local uh, craft festival and they say they have, you know, their local strain of honey 90 percent of the time his strain of honey is blended with theirs to make their local strain so mm -hmm. gotcha um, yeah and that, that it was more leaning towards like you know are, are they looking to do some mead have you you know do you do you do any distillation of mead you know any any kind of exploration on what happens with that i i have done several styles of mead um i, I do a braggart uh what i think they call melanonin or whatever melon it's a fruit type ye uh, mead. I do a, a grain slash uh, honey based mead. Um, I've, I've done right now. I have a barrel going of bourbon. I have the barrel going for a year and a half, but the, bar the barrel itself went for two years as a rum cask, three years as uh, I had a raspberry mead in there. Um, and now it's got the, uh, the bourbon in there right now, aging. Um, so hopefully in the next couple of years, I'll pull it out and see what it looks like. Get it out of my wife's basement. She'll yell, <laughs> take it up to his face. <laughs> so you're going to expect expect, expect some traditional rum or some traditional bourbon profile as well as raspberry mead and rum. Yes. That's what I'm hoping for. And, and the, the rum was a Navy strength that went in there. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully that, that, you know, took a lot of the tannins out of there. Um, the raspberry and honey, I'm hopefully hoping it added the sweetness back in 
to the fibers. Mm -hmm. So it just gives you, it's just, you know, a little bit of the burn, but uh, you know, a lot of the sweet and, and, and fruitiness. This could almost be a cocktail in a bottle at this point, right? Like that's if the flavor profiles sort of work out here. If it does, um, you, if it does. you've got a you've got a really nice like late summer, early fall cocktail that exists, at least in from from the way I would I would look at it. I yeah, I I it's kind of hard to say. It's like I I like to create something different, unique mm -hmm. to actually you know you can enjoy it anytime. Right. But if you want to put it in a mixed drink, hey, that's have at it. I mean, everything I create, um, right? No, I'm just saying I could. Drink I'd like to make it, and so it would be take, the take drink, right? it out of the bottle, you know, mm -hmm. and and take a sip of it. All right. So you said yeah, limoncello. Yeah, you can. What? What, what that, is limoncello? That's, that's, you're freezing up on me. Did you? Did I lose you? I don't know if it's me. Yeah, it, one of us is freezing up. It may, it, it's quite possibly me. Um, I'm gonna yell down. Limoncello is basically you take. Uh, yeah, one of us. I'm moving. I don't know if it. <laughs> um, limoncello is basically you take a high proof alcohol, soak them in lemon rinds. After you have the lemon rinds soaked up and it gets to a certain flavor that you'd like or that I'd like, I then would proof it down with sugar water and create a, a 40 proof. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, 40, no, or 60. I think it's 60, 60 proof. Uh, regional specific or state specific spirits has sort of been a push in a lot of places where New York is doing a New York rye, um, Indiana is doing an Indiana rye. Um, do, do you see the need or interest for Pennsylvania to kind of target its own standards for a rye whiskey? Uh, yes. And are you sort of for or against that? I, I am 100% for. Um, there is so much variation between farmland, between where I'm sitting right now and five miles down the road. I mean, they might have like a, a third of a inch more rainfall than I do. They may have, I mean, just the crops in itself will be, will cause a difference. So, I mean, I, I, I am 100% all for a localized um, strain as far as um, the rice. If you, since you, since you brought up the rye, I mean, I know that Laura Fields from the field foundation, she's got her rise and rye and she, and, and she works at Penn state on that. Um, there is also in our area of Pennsylvania a, a type of uh, rye that they use from, I, I believe it was either Sweden or Scandinavia, that was a different variety than the rosin. And getting it over here, I'm, 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 I'm trying to figure out who has it over there. And I'm working with a local college to see if I can get that brought over here so we can actually start producing it. So it's specific to our area. That I mean, it... Back when it was the 1600s uh, and it was William Penn owned Penn or had Pennsylvania. I mean, most majority of the area here, we were in the what they called the Great Basin. And we produced a lot of tomato uh, potatoes here. Um, the rye was a secondhand grain and, and that gained its influence from the, the, the Swedish and Scandinavian people who were moving into the area, as well as the Germanic people. Um, that was it. That was what they grew. Um, wheat was, it was the elite, and the people that were coming over um, on the, on the boats, they were not the elite. They were the, the scraps of you know Europe. Um, they knew what they had over there, and they only used what they had over there, and that was their rye. Um, so I I would definitely love to get this rye um, in the states, um, so I can actually start promoting that and and using a localized rye that is 
grown, uh, fertilized, malted, uh, using our own yeast strain. So, uh, and, and then just from conversations that I've had with other people that are trying to um, grow, you know, these, the what might be considered an heirloom grain or something that was grown here previously, you know, rye is, is relatively promiscuous. Like, how, how do you plan to sort of protect it from um, have having its nature kind of being dumbed down by, you know, any other rye that's grown in this, in a similar region? I like to give it a five mile berth. Um, mm-hmm. Usually, I mean, that's, Primarily, so you you check. I, I know a lot of the farmers in the, in this area. I know a lot of farmers in the Schuylkill County area and Lower Bucks. So I can always work with them, and you know, give that five mile berth. Um, mm-hmm. If you have that five mile berth at you know as the air flows, you're pretty much good. Um, yeah, I had I had Ari Sussman from uh, Mammoth up you know in, in Michigan, and he's got you know some rye that's growing out on a on an island in one of the Great Lakes to kind of isolate it from everything else for this exact you know exact process, and so it can be really really um, difficult to do. Um, do you have any other specialty grains? You know, you're chasing down this 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 old rye. Any other specialty grains? You know, get corn, wheat, rye. We got corn, then- re- wheat, rye, barley. We have uh, several varieties of barley. We have triticale that we grew and we actually uh, crossbred between the wheat and the rye. Um, we also have spelt, which is an ancient form of wheat that we grew. Um, we use that for a local uh, PA Pride beer, um, but as far as using it for uh, uh, I've, I've used it for a vodka and it, it comes out very clean, crisp, clear. Um, mix that with a little oats. Oats get add the creaminess to it. Um, fantastic. I'm, I, in fact, in a previous uh, consultancy um, with another local distillery, uh, I won, was it the Platinum Award with uh, Fred Minnick at the Ascot Awards um, for my vodka. So I was like number number two out of there. Um, so that that was a wheat oat vodka, and I think I have every of the, every bottle left from that company. I think I, I, we bought we bought the remainder, so at least we have them all. So right, I have. Yeah, and and that's interesting the the spelt thing and the triticale because I've you know I've seen a couple of people who have done a triticale whiskey. There's just very very small amount, and I've had one before, and it is very distinct. You know, in in the nature of triticale it's, itself, you know, it would lend itself to being a, a unique thing. Um, do you think it's the the local grains? Is it the soil? Like what makes, or maybe do you believe in terroir and whiskey? Yes, it, it that is like I was saying earlier. I mean, if you grow down the road and you, they might get like a third of an inch less or more rain than us, I mean, it has the impact on the grain quality, flavor profile, the the starch content, the enzymes contained in the. I mean, it does have a significant impact. Um, if you you know if you ever had uh, I guess smoked a cigar, you know, you can tell the difference between a, a Cuban cigar and a Dominican cigar. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, it's the land that, that actually fosters some of the flavor and you will get that. I mean, if you foster the land and make it uh, highly, uh, very sustainable, I mean, like we, we constantly are, are, are turning the soil. I mean, if you go up to, to, to the Cyan Dollar farm, you got maybe a eight inches of, of soil, and, you know, another thing that we're, we're doing is we're introducing uh, off-season crops and rotation. We're introducing uh, Japanese radish into the mix. And what they do is uh, the Japanese radish, the radish themselves grow to about two feet. 
and that causes a great aeration in the soil. Uh, and you let it sit in there. It's, I mean, it, it just breaks down the enzymes and, and it just causes so much uh, fertilizer to be nitrogen to be added back into the soil. Um, also, I mean, like I, like I said, I mean, depending on the way you plant, I mean, if you do northeast or north to south or east to west, I mean, it does have an impact on, on your crops. I mean, that's our forefathers. That's what they knew. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how they grew it. And they didn't have the fertilizers we have today. Fertilizer, I mean, you get fertilizer in any mix and combination of nitrogen, phosphorus, magnesium, and, you know, all that stuff is what you need. Um, but those guys didn't have that. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, we had, I mean, they had pig stuff. They had uh, excrement and pig sheep. They had horses and cows and they used that. Um, a lot of farmers I know have taken, if you've ever went to like a, a lake, they take off the lily pads, mm-hmm. take off the lily pads, use fish heads. I mean, that, I mean, for a small scale farm, you could do that, but for a large scale and you got 20 acres, you can't do stuff like that. You got to you rely on the, what, you know, you can get a tractor supplier, stuff like that. Yeah. A, a guy I used to work for had sort of found his own way to use um, natural fertilization means. Um, he decided to start, he, he's a farmer in this area, and he started um, doing aquaculture and farming catfish. And he ran his center pivot that sits over his corn and soybeans. It doesn't feed off a well. It feeds, feeds off the bottom of his catfish pond. So it's picking up catfish manure um, and any other decay that might happen. And to, to have the water to then put over top of it. So the nitrogen fix is incredible based off of it. And he's not having to drill a well to get after it. And so it was, hey, there are ways to do it, but it's really, really, really hard. And he had to start up a whole other business to feed that, right? So the, the fish business sort of pays for itself and he gets the fertilizer for free, you know, is what it boils oh, down yeah. to. So, but it, it does make a difference. And I, I think I've, I've, I've said it a number of times before. I think there is terroir. Um, you don't notice it as much in, you know, mass produced whiskeys because their goal is to try to make the same, make it taste the same over and over and over and over again and not vary too much, not have too much exploration, but all the interesting stuff happens in craft whiskey, or at least I think so. Uh, no, I believe so. I mean, you have it in wine. I mean, Pennsylvania wine versus California wine. I mean, they, the, the amount of rainfall that they have out there compared to here. I mean, it has an effect on the grapes, the soil structure, the soil's tight all has an impact on the grapes and it, it you know out, i believe out here the, the grapes because they're uh it's more wetter out here we have you know more rainfall i mean the grapes are not as sweet as they would be from california mm-hmm. same thing with the grains the, the barley the, the 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 corn um last year i was pulling in uh, uh the red corn I, I i think i was pulling in eight inch uh, to 10 inch cobs and we're getting like 20 rows on it and uh, big, big hardy grains. But I mean, the number of rows diminished. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it all depends, but I mean, that will cause different flavor coming down the pike. Absolutely. Um, and it, you know, it'll, it'll make, you know, batches really, really important. And that's the thing that I, I think is starting to catch up in whiskey and maybe I'm off here is that, um, you know, wines have vintages, and you know, if I get a wine from 2010 from, um, you know, Napa, it may be slightly varied from one place to the other, but they all sort of live through the same weather conditions, whatever. Um, at least within craft whiskey, I think vintages or, you know, batches for that matter are going to be kind of important for that because you know, I'm going to get variation. And that's what I sort of want because you get tired of drinking the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, and that's, that's one thing that I, I like about doing the craft is that each year you're going to have different flavors. You're going to try and marry it um, to mm-hmm. back to the original 
uh, flavor profile, um, you're not going to be exactly spot on. Right. You're going to have subtle differences, maybe a little bit more oakiness, maybe a little more fruitiness, or maybe, you know, hey, you know, I'm getting more more spices on this one. And, and this one's I'm getting on the front of the tongue versus the back of the tongue this time. So each one's going to be different. And that's that's mm-hmm. the good thing about being a crafty star. Yeah, because there's there's this other bit of magic that you have almost no control over is that once you put it in the barrel. It's. Hands what? <laughs> right? Like you, you, you taste it along the way. And, you know, I, I was talking to a guy last week or two weeks ago and he's, you know, uh, you taste one and it tastes bad. You just keep tasting it and hope eventually it turns around, you know, maybe it eventually will, or maybe it won't. And, you know, uh, how it interacts with the wood, even though it may be the exact same new make that's in the barrel next to it isn't different. Right. And so you, you're never going to get it exactly right. And, uh, you know, my dad has, he's brewed beer for you know 30 years. Uh, just as a side hobby, a thing that he did. And he's, you know, uh, being a, a, a home brewer, you look at people like Miller Coors or you know, Anheuser-Busch and think, you know, it's an amazing feat that they can put, put out a, a can today and a can in five years and that it's going to taste exactly the same, right? Because they've sort of lined that out. And that's really, really hard to do, but it's also sort of boring. You know, and it's, you know. Well, it's, it's funny you said it because we had I had the conversation, was it last night, uh, one of the wineries we were at, um, we were talking about Yingling. Yingling is a local brewery here in Pottsville. We used to uh, take a little sidetrack for you. When I, when I was growing up, it was uh, like $5 a case of Yingling. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, it tasted different than what it, you know, that was what I was going to get to. But I remember getting a case for $5. Um, fast forward a number of years, I'm in Jersey. Um, on the date with my wife at the time uh, when we were dating, um, we're at a local bar and uh, the lady's like, oh, yeah, we got a, some kind of new beer. It's called Ying Ying. Ying, Ying. And she couldn't even say it. Yep. I'm like, you mean Yingling? And she goes, yeah. She walks up to me, puts the, the bottle right on the table and she goes, $7. I'm like, I just want one. She goes, that is one. I'm like, I could go home and spend $5 on a case and you're going to sell me one for seven? I was like, no, it isn't. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, we were talking about this last night. Yingling, if you... Uh, had one of their bo- or bottles or uh, cans 20 years ago. Yep. Does not taste like what it tastes like today. Today is it is crisp. It's clean. Um, it, it, it is maybe it's my palate. Uh, it, it might be the same recipe, but my palate, I mean, it tastes totally different and it is so much better. And I, I believe Dick handing it off to his daughters. Great job, because they're going to kill it. I, well, I think there's a number of places that were maybe like bottom-tier beers that went through like a, a recipe reset maybe 10 years ago, because uh, PBR did the same thing, right? Uh, I remember what PBR was in the late, you know, mid to late 90s, and then all of a sudden it hit this resurgence, and they're like, hey, we, re, we re, they actually advertised that they had reworked their recipe a little bit. And it's not that it's an amazing beer now, but it's significantly better than what it was, <laughs> you know, 20 years ago, for sure. Like, that's there's no question about that. PBR got me through high school. <laughs> Look, hey, you know, there's a reason those things exist. You know, I, I had a friend in college. His dad kept Bush Light in his fridge, and that was for everybody that visited that didn't bring their own beer. Yeah, it worked, <laughs> but it wasn't great. Exactly. Um, I'm trying to look through see if there's anything that I. So you've 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 mentioned wineries a number of times. Have you been working in wine? for a long time or is that something that's kind of come along more recently no no that i've I've been doing wines for almost 30 years as long as i've been doing beers whiskeys and uh and vodkas um actually i've been doing rums 
rum was the easy one for me. I've been doing that one for over 30 years. It's it's the the whiskey, the beers, the meads, the wines that I've been doing for 30 years. So um, mm-hmm. as far as the wineries go, I've it's just taking my wife out on the weekend, going to a local winery just to have fun, her and I. Last night we started talking to the people, um, you know, she, you know, my wife does a lot of marketing, so, you know, she's going to help them out on that. And they're asking me about, you know, what I did and as far as a distillery and, and I tell them what I did with as far as yeast. And then next thing you know, hey, can you meet with our, you know, our, our, our brewer or whatever, Vinter, meet with our yes. Vinter, yeah, and uh, see if we can get something specifically for us. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. And I said, you know, we can do some trade-offs, maybe some barrels or something like that. So one of those uh, quid pro quos. Yeah. Trading barrels. You're you're looking for your next angle. And I I enjoy that because I I like, I like, I like people that play with barrels and, you know, see if you can get a different flavor profile, get something that unique that's, that's interesting that's out there. Um, So you've talked a little bit about, um, you've distilled for a while. So how did you get into this as a hobby? Like how people get into, you know, cause I think it started, did it start as a hobby and became a, a side job or did they kind of come together? It kind of came together. I mean, it was just, like I said, I was, I was, uncle Argyle was teaching me and he's, he's asking me to do this or do that. Cause I mean, he couldn't do it. He was in Ohio. He, I mean, he passed away five years ago at 96 Still drinking a bottle of Gentleman Jack every two days. Um, it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd call him at eleven o'clock in the morning on a Sunday after a major snowstorm. I mean, you know, how you doing? How is that good? <laughs> okay, shuffling <laughs> and drunk. All right, that's great. Um, but it, it started as a hobby, just playing around um, mm-hmm. and experimenting. And I mean, I, I mean, I was experimenting with a lot of stuff. I was experiment as I as I stated before. I got a, a friend that's a professor at uh, a couple universities, a couple, and they'd get me. Uh, he'd get me. What the hell are you getting? It was Viagra. He got me. I would have to say close to thirty thousand Viagra pills from India. He's like, "Can you do anything with this?" Okay, let's try something. So I did a vodka with the Viagra, and. Uh, I don't know if you guys play ding dong ditch out there in uh, Kentucky, but we could play it hands free out here in Pennsylvania after you had that Viagra. It so was, is, this, it, is this is this where your 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 quotation nickname came into play? No, 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 not even. Close. My wife doesn't even know why they call me that. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things, but um, it's funny because I mean, I just it was an experimentation, and then um, mm-hmm. for a number of years, I'm like, oh, you know, we can do this. I'm like, yeah, we can do this. I mean, I I can whatever type of things. I was going over to Weyerbacher getting their beer that they were throwing out because they couldn't, it wasn't, Weyerbacher's a local Easton uh, brewery. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they couldn't sell the beer, that they would be giving me totes and I'd be running that and trying to figure out how to, to take the hops out of it. You know, it mm-hmm. was just experimentation. And all of a sudden it started taking off. Somebody, you know, introduced me to this other uh, bunch of guys that were starting the distillery. I'm like, hey, what do you guys need? I mean, I've been playing with this for years. Do you need my help? And they brought me on as a consultant. I like I won a number of awards for them. Um, mm-hmm. After that, you know, it just started taking off. And other, other companies, hey, you know, hey, understand you can do this. Can you do this for me? Um, people had, uh, I just got called. Who was it? One of the concerts. They're, they're doing a con- local concert here. They they requested my my vodka mm-hmm. um so i got to do that too so so this i mean this sounds like a like i said way way earlier this sounds like a like a full-time job like how do you balance doing this and having an entire career in another line of business like how does how does this work 
I don't sleep. Um, I'll get up. I have an 18 year old son. He just graduated high school, getting ready to go to college. Um, he'll be downstairs on the computer playing till all, odd hours in the morning, mm-hmm. two o'clock, one o'clock in the morning. I'll be getting up. I mean, I might crash and crash at 11 o'clock at night. I'll get up one, two o'clock in the morning. I'll go to the gym. Um, it's just a workout, come back, do some stuff, like play with some yeast, um, clean up the kitchen because I don't want my wife to wake up mad. Um, <laughs> and, and it's then, not a great way to start the day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do my work day. And because, because I do software and I'm, I'm, I'm a remote employee majority of the time, um, I, I have that luxury where I don't get to commute. Um, mm-hmm. and I could do anything from the house. So, I mean, yeast brewing, you know, distilling, it's pretty easy. Uh, you can just turn some things on and let it run. You know, you get it at your certain, like if I'm doing a, a, a still, I'm running a batch or doing a strip and run strip and run. I just let it go. Um, mm-hmm. but if I'm doing a spirit run that I'm doing all the cuts, um, got a camera in the, in the, uh, facility watching everything. Um, so I can do my conference calls, sit there at the computer. I have another computer on the side. I could watch the still and monitor it. And then if something's going on, I could just take the headphones on, walk out, do what I got to do, go back in. Um, so it's just constantly moving. I'm going to start paying because I, I, I do remote work quite a bit as well. I'm going to start paying attention if I've got anybody that get, keeps getting up and leaving a conference call and coming back. I'm going to ask them if they're distilling too. Like, I, listen, I know about this guy. This is what he's doing. I need to, like, if you're doing the same, that's fine. Just send me something. That's all I'm after. Well, it's it's funny because in my, my work computer, I got the slide over top of the screen. So I just go like that. Yep. And it, yep. And it gives my background. Um, my This is my personal laptop. So I don't have that. And I, I can actually pick up my stuff and go with me too. So it's, mm-hmm. that's not a big deal. But yeah, we do. I do that all the time. I, I like I said, I had like so many batches, five gallon batches, sitting in my wife's dining room, fermenting, just to get the one yeast strain. And uh, I literally, I mean, this, I, that whole two weeks before that, I had uh, what was it the digi boil or this brew thing? It's a brew in a kettle thing um, that you can get for for brewing beers. I was using that to to make my my bourbon. I'd make the mash, use it on the grain, dump it in, let it ferment, put my yeast strain in there, let it sit, and do my calculations, write it down, um, take my notes, slap my blue tape on it, and then go on to the next batch. Sounds like you have a very patient wife, is, is what it sounds oh like. God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it it also sounds like you you have an incredible passion for what you're what you're working with here. Um, I'm sort of at the end. I'm not the end of the questions I've had, but I have, I'm at the end of the time that I've got. I've, I've got a few things that I've got to take care of downstairs. No, uh, so I also have an unmad spouse um, in, in the same situation. <laughs> um, if, is there anything else that you want to cover real quick or talk about? We, you know, we've got a few more minutes here. No, I mean, John, with me, I'm, I am an open book. I'll tell you whatever I can. Um, as far as like you, you asked about proprietary information, I, most of the stuff that I do, um, I mean, I do have certain little, like you said, little uh, rituals that I do, mm-hmm. so to speak, that, that kind of set me apart. Um, most of the stuff that I do, uh, you can get it online. Right. You know, but. I, that, yeah, but I think it's the little, and that's why I try to not go too, too deep. Yeah. Is that I think it's the little extra things that you do that make the difference, right? It's Definitely. the things that maybe nobody knows anything about. And it's goes, it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, your grandmother's recipe. You can't get it exactly right because there's something that she did that no one knows. And if you were able to find it out, maybe you could replicate the behavior. Maybe you couldn't, but 
there's something we just don't know what it is and that's what made it great well when she did the uh the strip and run of the the rye she would take a handful of salt and throw it in is it the size of the, the you know the her hand? Where did the salt come from? Right? Yeah. What, the, what? Where was the salt source of the salt? What was the size of the hand? What was the size of the granules of the salt? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. There were many things that could go into play there, right? And so it's the little the little things are usually what makes the difference. you know, at least in mine. In, in, in mine. Oh no, trust me. It's the little things that, that cause it. I mean, it could like you said, it could be the water because up there that was all coal town, and you get sulfur in the water. Yeah. From the coal. So, I mean, growing up, we had the Sulphur Creek next to us. Uncle Uncle Argyle used to use the Sulphur Creek as a cooling tower as well as water source for his rye whiskey. It was better than mine. Right. So I go up to the farm and he picks up some more of that water. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate you. Um, we'll have to do this again. Yeah, if you want. I mean, I'm there. If Anytime you want me to, you know, yeah. jump in, just let me know. Hey, do you want to do a show this weekend or you want to do this this weekend? I'll, yeah. And if you want to do it on a specific thing, um, I got, I got like 20, and this is, I talked about this last night. I got like 10, 20 degrees. I mean, I'll study it. I'll study it before we get on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I only have two degrees, but it took me 15 years to get them. So, you know, I, no, I, I did the, the first 10 years as an undergrad. Um, where'd you go? I, I just Murray at local university here. It's a small university in Western Kentucky. Um, but I went and like did an MBA in three years just to prove that I wasn't a dummy, right? Because if it takes ten years to get a bachelor's degree, people are like, "Are you stupid or did you just enjoy life?" And I enjoyed life, is what I did. You drank, don't I, see? I I went to college. You enjoyed college. There, well, see, the thing is though, you pass through three. If you stay in for ten years, you pass through three unique classes of people that come in and out that also drank, right? And so there was just, you know, I changed majors for half a dozen times. You know, explored different things. But it all worked out. Anyway, went back and got an MBA just to prove like I could finish a degree on time and do it well academically. And where'd you get your MBA from? I got it from Murray State, the same university. Okay, um, all right. You know. I, I have my undergrad. Uh, I got like, I got several associate's degrees from a local community college. Then I got mm-hmm. uh, undergrad. I got from Ryder College in New Jersey, Princeton University, and Rutgers University, which is my Japanese language. And I got my master's over in Tokyo. Did you say Japanese language? Yes. See, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm. I'm. I'm not one of those people that gets language acquisition very easily. My wife is. She's a um, EL teacher um, locally here, and you know, her her major was what, English literature and Spanish in, in college, and she lived in Costa Rica for like three summers, and so she's incredibly fluent. Language acquisition is no problem for her. Um, it just doesn't work for me. Like it, my my brain is t- far too beyond language acquisition at this point. Yeah, you you get it. Just get immerse yourself into it and have your right. wife speak talking Spanish. Just, make her talk listen. only Spanish. No, no, no. It happens from time to time, but that's usually when she doesn't want me to know. Like I've got two kids, <laughs> and they both understand Spanish far better than I do too. Um, John, you know where I'm at. Anytime you want to, yep. you, know, you know, you want to shoot. Uh, let me know, man. It's been a Absolutely. pleasure to talk. Definitely been a pleasure. I appreciate your yeah. time and your patience. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for tuning in to this offering of the Embellished Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform you happen to be consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media at Twitter or Instagram using EmbellishPod, or give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. I can be found at www.embellishpod.com with all of my links, accounts, contact details, and more. Thanks for stopping by.